All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Welcome to episode nine, season two of Professionally Embarrassing. We're sorry that there's been a bit of a wait but you may have seen that we've both been on holiday and actually I have also moved chambers. So if you want to find me, I'm now at 36 family, which is very exciting. And thank you to everyone who has said, well done. Um, I'm really enjoying it so far. So thank you. This week, I am revisiting a further issue in a case that I think we talked about right at the beginning of this show. And we are also going to have a look at our tweets of the week and give you some recommendations as well. So the case that I'm doing this week is called REP, brackets, children, colon, disclosure, 2022. It was in the Court of Appeal and the judgment was handed down on the 12th of April, 2022. Now, it is a case that involves the same parties as the case of F and M from January 2021, which you may remember is something we've talked about on this podcast. It was a very long fact finding by um, Mr. Justice Hayden that made very serious findings of criminality, including coercive and controlling behaviour, rape, kidnap, abduction, lots of different things, lots of very scary behaviour exhibited by the father in that case. Obviously, the child arrangements proceedings have continued in the background um, following that fact finding. And this is the same parties again on a discrete issue in that case. And just like some cases that we have both seen, this seems to be the case that just keeps on giving because it's been in the Court of Appeal last week on this issue. Now, it sets out in the judgment, and the the lead judgment is by Lord Burnett, the mother and father are now in dispute about the arrangements that should be made for the children, in respect of which there will be further hearings. The mother seeks an order that the father should be deprived of parental responsibility, and he seeks an order for contact with the children. The application that the father has made on a discrete issue is an application essentially for him to be able to make incriminating statements in the children proceedings, presumably in relation to the findings made by Mr. Justice Hayden, and for those admissions or discussions of criminality not to be disclosed at all to any prosecuting authorities, the police or the CPS. This is a unique application because the right for things to be said and then not disclosed does not currently exist in English law. The essence of the argument is what the Court of Appeal have called blanket advance protection sought by the father, that the proceedings determining the arrangements for the children will not be fair unless he incriminates himself and is given the protection that he therefore seeks. The father has instructed Silk on this and the father Silk submits that otherwise the position is neither fair within the meaning of Article 6 of the ECHR and the overriding objective, nor is it in the best interest of the subject children within the meaning of Section 1 of the Children Act. The application by the father at the lower level was dismissed by the judge on the basis that it was premature to consider a question of disclosure to the police without knowing the content of any statement or admission. 
And secondly, that it was inappropriate to fashion the wide protection sought by the father by analogy with the more limited protection provided in public law family proceedings. Now, I don't know how many people know that there is a right not to self-incriminate in public law proceedings under Section 98 of the Children Act. What Section 98 says is that in any proceedings in which a court is hearing an application for an order under Part 4 or 5, no person shall be excused from A, giving evidence on any matter, or B, answering any question put to him in the course of his giving evidence, on the ground that doing so might incriminate him or his spouse or civil partner of an offence. Section 2 goes on to say, a statement or admission made in such proceedings shall not be admissible in evidence against the person making it or his spouse or civil partner in proceedings for an offence other than perjury. So essentially what Section 98 says is you have to answer a question, you can't not answer it on the basis of self-incrimination, but if you do answer it and it discloses criminal material, that statement is not admissible to the criminal courts other than for perjury. However, we obviously all know that you can make an application for that statement or admission to be disclosed to the police and the family court will take a view as to whether it in fact will be disclosed to the police. So it's not it's not an absolute right. Um, and often, I don't know about Malika, but I've been involved in cases where parents have made admissions about things that are criminal, for example, child abuse or domestic abuse. And those statements have then been applied for by the police to be disclosed to allow the criminal courts to take their own proceedings against the parent. So subject to orders by the family court preventing disclosure to prosecuting authorities, statements or admissions are capable of being used for the purposes of a criminal investigation. It therefore follows essentially that the application being made by the father in this case is actually much more wide ranging than the current protection afforded by Parliament to those in public law proceedings. That needs to be put against the backdrop of the fact that there is, of course, a privilege against self-incrimination in Section 14 of the Civil Evidence Act. What Section 14 says is that the right of a person in any legal proceedings other than criminal proceedings, so family proceedings, to refuse to answer any question or produce any document or thing, if to do so would tend to expose that person to proceedings for an offence or for the recovery of a penalty, shall apply only as regards criminal offences under the law of any part of the UK and shall include a like right to refuse to answer any question or produce any document or thing, if to do so would tend to expose the spouse or civil partner of that person to proceedings of any such criminal offence or the recovery of such penalty. So essentially, the privilege against self-incrimination is an example of people being able to refuse to answer questions that might incriminate them. What it doesn't do is say, if you do answer it and expose yourself to criminal liability, that that criminal liability is then not going to be disclosed to the police. So it's a different form of protection to section 98. The court note that it is not a part of the father's appeal in this case, that he should be deprived by judicial decision of his privilege against self-incrimination, as would be the case pursuant to statute where these proceedings governed, basically were they public law proceedings. His aim is to preserve his privilege and to rely upon it if he chooses by refusing to answer questions in court or to engage in a pre-hearing process. But in addition, he seeks to fashion a further blanket of protection including but going beyond that provided by Section 98 if he does choose to answer questions. So he wants to preserve his privilege not to answer if he doesn't want to. But if he does answer, and those answers are self-incriminatory, he wants blanket protection to stop his answers being disclosed to the police in all circumstances, which is not a right that currently exists for anyone, even in public law proceedings. So the court consider the application and they go through the law in some detail. And there's actually paragraph 17 to 20 of the judgment are very helpful on when the court will give permission to disclose information from family courts to criminal courts. So if you're doing a case on that, have a look at paragraph 17 to 20 of this judgment. But what the court goes on to say is this, and bear in mind that the director of public prosecutions actually intervened in this appeal. 
giving submissions on the use of material disclosed from the family proceedings. So again, there's some interesting stuff in the judgment about when material from the family proceedings is disclosed to the criminal proceedings and, and how they deal with it and, and what they do. And that is very helpful as well. That's at paragraphs 23 to 27. Essentially, the courts say this. In written and oral submissions, the parties referred to the possibility that adverse inferences might be drawn in the family proceedings from the father's refusal to answer or engage in questions and evidence. The judge understood the parties to have agreed that the court would be entitled to draw inferences from a party's silence in family proceedings, where the broader canvas of the evidence enables the court to do so, taking into account all the factors. We've covered that before. However, this appeal does not concern the drawing of adverse inferences because the underlying proceedings have not reached a stage where that question might arise. Whether any inference should be drawn would have to be decided in accordance with principle derived from many appellate decisions. It does not bear upon the question we have to decide. So what the father is asking is that he essentially wants, as I say, blanket protection, that anything he does say, if he chooses to say it, will not be disclosed to criminal proceeding CPS police. And he says the reason that that should happen is fivefold. He says, firstly, the father is facing an unfair binary choice between speaking or not speaking, because if he does speak, it will be disclosable. He says he should have found that the proceedings would not operate in the best interests of the children because the father's silence, if he's not protected, will leave an evidential gap in circumstances where case law and perhaps direction 12J emphasise the crucial importance of recognition and insight on the part of parents if positive welfare outcome is to be achieved. Basically, it seems to me fairly clear, and this is a guess because it doesn't say in the judgment, that the father wants to say, yes, I did all of these things, so that the court can then say he's demonstrating insight to allow him to have contact with the children in the way that we would expect a parent who has been found to have committed domestic abuse to do so. The difficulty is his behaviour, as we know from FNM, was so serious and so awful. If he admits it in family proceedings, it's very likely he's going to be criminally tried for the same behaviour against multiple women. And that includes things like rapes. So that's the difficulty that the father says he's facing. He says that he wants the application to be preemptive so that before he's even opened his mouth to give any evidence, he will be protected, whatever he says. He says he wants the protection to essentially allow him to have a cloak of immunity and mean that he no longer is able to rely, or the police or CPS are not able to rely on anything that he has said to the family court. And for that reason, it's in the interest of the children because the children will be able to know exactly what happened to them without their father being concerned about criminal proceedings. The other side obviously make arguments that say that the father has the same choices as any other litigant in the history of private children proceedings. He either accepts the findings or he doesn't, or he can accept some of them and not others. The layers of protection that apply in the family criminal proceedings ensure that the process is fair enough without needing a further layer of protection. They say that the process of disclosure is not static, evidence evolves, and no judge can make a preemptive blanket order at the outset of any proceedings. And in this case, the judge's findings are so serious that no admissions by the father would realistically improve his position. So basically, even if he does admit to everything, it's so serious that he's not ever going to realistically have to have contact with these children. That's not the question that's being decided by this court, but it's an interesting point to think about. The Court of Appeal say this, the application fails. First, because the judge was unwilling in the first instance to entertain a blanket application in respect of hypothetical incriminating statements or evidence. They might range widely in seriousness and even involve details which did not form part of the findings of fact made by the judge. The adverse findings made in the fact-finding hearing covered a wide spectrum of criminality, the most serious of which was rape. Even assuming in the father's favour that the court could fetter its later discretion to consider questions of onward disclosure when it possessed knowledge of the details of what might be disclosed, we find it almost impossible to envisage a situation in which it would be proper for the court to do so. Instead of carrying out the re exercise and balancing all the relevant factors, 
the court would be required to give preemptive priority at some expense of others. In effect, it would be writing a blank check. The judge was right to decline to embark on such an unsound exercise. They say this is not a case directly about the privilege against self-incrimination. That exists to protect defendants in criminal and equivalent proceedings, whether the protection arises at common law from statute or as a component part of Article 6. The several protections afforded in the criminal prosecution and trial process admit of no possibility that anything disclosed from family proceedings could be used in a way which would give rise to a violation of Article 6 in criminal proceedings. Ultimately, it would be the duty of the trial judge to exclude evidence which have that effect. In saying this, we do not wish it to be thought that admissions of serial criminality in private law family proceedings would be likely to be regarded as inadmissible in criminal proceedings directly or as previous inconsistent statements. Lord Reed's review of the Strasbourg case law in the context of the criminal limb of Article 6 in Vaux law reinforces that view. The reality is, however one views it, that the father seeks greater protection than accorded by Parliament to those in public law proceedings because he does not suggest that he should be stripped of his privilege against self-incrimination. We must therefore consider whether Article 6 confers the suggested very wide-ranging protection on a family law private litigant. The material part of Article 6 is that in the determination of civil rights and obligations, everyone is entitled to a fair hearing by a tribunal. We have been shown no Strasbourg case which comes close to supporting the father's proposition. In our view, the order which the father seeks, relying on Article 6 of the Convention, is an attempt to establish a new principle of convention law which goes beyond the clear and constant jurisprudence of the Strasbourg Court. And that's from DPP and Kurikain. In making his argument, the father is not seeking a privilege not to incriminate himself, but a privilege to self-incriminate with absolute protection as to the consequences. That would be contrary to the sound administration of justice. That conclusion is illustrated by the facts of this case. It is one thing, as Headley decided in FNM, to prevent the disclosure to the police of admission to a sexual offence which involved no violence or lack of consent, but quite another to hold back on an admission of rape were the father to make one. The father's submissions risk undermining aspects of the rule of law and giving no weight to the public interest in the conviction of those guilty of serious criminality. For all those reasons, we dismiss the appeal. What do you think? In respect to your suggestion that it's not explicit in the judgment, but it may be the case that the father wants to accept the findings or say, I own up to this and I show insight. And But, you know, that puts me in a catch-22 if I could incriminate myself. Well, perhaps part of that process of acceptance is also to accept the consequences of what you're admitting to, you know, potentially criminal consequences as well. So I think I, I think that that's the right decision from the Court of Appeal. But very interesting. It's a bold submission from fathers, as we often get told in court when we're almost likely to fail. Yeah, it's interesting. I agree with you on the point about what is insight if you're stopping at the point at which consequences start to kick in. How much insight is he really showing by making this application? But I also think the key point about public law proceedings is that the state are involved, the local authority are involved, taking children away from all parents, from family. You know, that is a very different thing to private citizens arguing about how much time their child spends with one or the other because the state's not directly involved. Article 6 applies because it's used of the court system, but it doesn't apply in the same way because the state's not the one removing the children from a party. You know, human rights apply horizontally, not vertically. So I wonder whether the court could have gone into that a little bit more. They do touch on Article 6 quite a lot in the judgment, but they don't explicitly say, you know, this is why it is much more serious for parents involved in care proceedings to be faced by the state. This is the same argument, you know, that people make about why is there a presumption of contact in care proceedings where parents are you know, accused of injuring or sexually abusing or harming or neglecting their children? Why are they allowed contact three times a week and a father who is in private law proceedings isn't? 
it's because it's the arm of the state making these decisions. That's a very different thing to a private citizen exercising something against a private citizen. So I think the father, it, it's an interesting application. It's a very interesting judgment. But I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's a bold application to make, especially when one of the supporting grounds is that you're trying to show insight. It, it's quite ironic in that sense, I think. What have you got for us this week? I have got a case, which I'm going to put a trigger warning for before anyone reads it and before you listen to my part of this episode. Trigger warning for discussion of rape, sexual assault and intimate images being circulated. If those are things that you would feel uncomfortable listening to, then maybe skip this part of the episode and go towards the end. Maddie, have you ever had a case where intimate images have formed a part of the evidence before the court? I have, yes. Unfortunately, I imagine lots of private law practitioners at this point have, including me, and it's an area of practice that I think has been largely unregulated with lawyers not really knowing how to manage those images in a way that balances their evidential value against the impact on the person in the images. And there's definitely no consistent approach being applied it's sort of judges being left to do what they think is best so I was really interested to read the decision of Mrs Justice Knowles in M a child private law children proceedings case management intimate images which was handed down at the end of last month because it offers some really helpful guidance on what to do when this issue rears its head it's an absolute must read for private law children practitioners because unfortunately you may well end up with a case where this happens And Mrs. Justice Knowles says in the judgment that anecdotally, this is becoming increasingly common. We can imagine the scenario, which is that one party may accuse the other of, for example, rape. The other party says, well, I never raped them. Look at these images or videos of them enthusiastically participating in sexual activity with me, et cetera, et cetera. The case goes a lot into the specific factual matters that relate to this particular family, expert evidence relating to this particular mother, which I'm not going to go into because it's not necessary for me to explore what makes the case legally interesting, which is the treatment of intimate images. So the background to this is that the father made an application for a child arrangements order in respect to the child who's called M in the judgment, and he sought shared care. The High Court found that the mother had wrongfully removed M to Romania and directed that she return. The mother came back and then subsequently made an application for leave to remove M to Romania. There was a fact-finding hearing at which the mother made various allegations of a very serious sexual nature against the father, including that he raped her and was violent towards her during sex. The mother then appealed the outcome of the finding of fact and that appeal was allowed on the basis that she didn't have the benefit of participation direction. So uh, directions that would allow her to participate safely in the proceedings would allow her to give her best evidence because of an assumption of vulnerability because of the allegations that she made. And secondly, the appeal was allowed because the judge had, it was found by the appeal court that the first instance judge had given insufficient consideration to the possibility that the mother may have been over-dependent on the relationship with the father or vulnerable in the relationship. So after the appeal, the proceedings were then remitted to Mrs Justice Knowles for case management and rehearing of the fact find. And one of the issues that she needed to sort out at the case management stage was the admissibility of a lot And when I say a lot, I mean a lot of photo and video evidence that was relied upon in the first fact-finding hearing. 
Mrs. Justice Knowles gives a very helpful definition of intimate image at paragraph 47 of the judgment, which I'll read out in full. For the sake of clarity, when I use the term intimate image in the context of private law proceedings, I am describing an image of a person, whether an adult or a child, naked or partially naked. Such an image can include part of a person's body, clothed or unclothed, such as breasts, genitalia or the anus, which are generally regarded as private. Intimate images include those of a person engaged in what is normally regarded as private behaviour, such as washing, urinating, masturbating, or engaged in other sexual acts, either alone or with another being. The images with which I am concerned are both still and moving images. None of the parties sought to define what an intimate image was, but it struck me that this might be helpful for courts and practitioners. In offering my suggested definition, I have deliberately not made reference to definitions contained in the criminal law, as those did not seem to me to meet the needs of the family court. And we've discussed on this podcast before the different roles of the family court and the criminal court and and not to rely too heavily upon definitions in the criminal court when identifying certain behaviours in the family court. Go back to our episode on re-HN, where Maddie in particular talks about that. So how is it that the images came to form a part of the proceedings? So in fact, it was the mother who had initially sought to rely on the evidence prior to the first fact find, and that included six videos of the parents having sex on four separate occasions. There was absolutely no warning to the father or to the court about the nature of the evidence that was being filed. And that's when things started to spiral, because then in response to the mother, the father exhibited 32 videos to his next statement, 17 of which related to the four occasions relied upon by the mother in her video material. His counsel said those videos demonstrate a totally different perspective on the party's relationship than what is the picture being painted by the mother. Yet again, when the father filed his material, court wasn't warned about the nature of the material being relied upon. Then you can see where this is going. The mother then filed another statement exhibiting more intimate material, including a further video of her and father engaging in sexual activity. Then after the first fact find had concluded, the mother filed a statement in which she said, I can't believe that the father was allowed to upload videos of me masturbating. For example, how is that relevant to the issues in the case? The father tried to make me look like a woman who's always up for it or asking for it. Nobody asked my permission at all. It was shocking so many people to see those videos and to have everyone else watching them. I lived through the trauma and was being made to do it again. I felt sick to see the father had added videos of me, which I had no knowledge of. I'm sure that the father added those videos to humiliate me. I feel that he abused me all over again with those videos. Mrs. Justice Knowles makes a point of stating that at no point did the party seek the guidance of the court about the huge numbers of intimate images that they were both seeking to rely upon. So at the case management state, Mrs. Justice Knowles says to the parties to append to their skeleton arguments a schedule of all the intimate material and to make very clear what material is actually relevant. The father complied with that direction, but the mother produced a schedule which didn't really engage with the issue of necessity or relevance, and the judge was critical of that. When it came before Mr. Justice Knowles for case management, the mother then submitted that all the intimate images relied upon by both parents shouldn't be disclosed into the proceedings because they aren't relevant. 
So her counsel suggested that the father was running sexual history defense, i.e. because the mother was sexually experienced, she couldn't possibly have been raped, and it was a form of revenge porn. Father submitted that the material had been deployed first in time by the mother, and that included explicit content about him without his consent. And he was relying on his own material to rebut her allegations. And when he did so, she then sought to withdraw her own images. So in effect, he was saying, I was trying to defend myself against the allegations and the material was relevant. And when the mother realized the deficits in her own case, she then tried to withdraw her own exhibits, which she had previously relied upon. Very, very messy. So the judge found that the deployment of intimate images, both moving and still, in these proceedings has been wholly unboundaried and disproportionate. And in determining how she would control the evidence, she said, I part company from Mr. Tyler QC, who's father's counsel, in that I don't accept that it will be rare for relevant evidence to be excluded. It will be excluded if it is deployed in great amounts without justification or addresses the same issue repeatedly and without bringing anything of forensic value to what has already been submitted. For example, to persuade a court that a couple's sexual relationship was mutually satisfactory does not require the admission into the evidence of numerous still and moving intimate images of the couple having sex. However, I accept his submission that the relevance test must of necessity be generously applied at a pre-hearing stage, but that is not an open door to permit everything, including the proverbial kitchen sink being deployed to bolster a case. The judge then says, if material is relevant and has probative value, other factors may come into play in both the court's assessment of proportionality and the ultimate control of its process. Put simply, the court must, in this case, undertake a balancing exercise between the father's right to a fair hearing when faced with extremely serious allegations and the mother's need to have a fair process, which does not impact adversely on her ability as a vulnerable witness to give her best evidence to the court. The introduction into proceedings of intimate material, which is likely to be distressing to the mother and also embarrassing for the father, is one of the considerations relevant to that exercise. Now, I think those observations are extremely helpful because I think family lawyers have a tendency, as she says, to throw everything in the kitchen sink into the proceedings because the rules of evidence are not as tight as they are in criminal proceedings. And generally, I, I agree with the submission that was that Mr. Tyler Kesey tried to make but didn't succeed on, which is that evidence that's relevant is rarely excluded. I think often that is the approach taken by courts that, you know, just let it in, it's fine. No rules of evidence in family courts, just let it all in. But there clearly needs to be a proportionate approach in dealing with evidence of this kind. I mean, evidence more broadly, but specifically evidence of this kind, there needs to be a proportionate approach. The judge then goes on to set out her preliminary conclusions about what to do with the material in this case, which I won't go into because I want to focus on the broader principles rather than what specifically happened with this family. So from paragraph 76 onwards, she makes general observations about the use of intimate images, which are an absolute must read because there isn't any guidance or guidelines anywhere else about the use of intimate images, which is why she felt compelled to put this together. And she says, it will be apparent to readers of this judgment that I have grave concerns about the use of intimate images in private law children proceedings where allegations of abuse, specifically domestic abuse, are made. I perceive it to be a problem which is already present in a growing number of private law children cases, 
and one which is likely only to increase given the growing use of still and or moving images to document intimate relationships. And she goes on to say that what she drew from the various submissions made by the parties and her own observations is the following. So sexually explicit or intimate videos and photographs should not be filed as part of evidence without a written application being made to the court in advance. I think that's incredibly sensible. Clearly that has come out of both parties having induced huge volumes of intimate evidence, which no one had any prior warning of. And just from an advocate's perspective, it can be very distressing to be confronted with images that you had no idea were coming. We've talked about vicarious trauma on this podcast before about the things that we have to see as part of our job. But I think it's fair to say we should have prior warning before being forced to confront it so that we can manage how we respond. So I think that's a very, very sensible observation. Any such application will require the court's adjudication, preferably at an already listed case management hearing. It's for the party making the application to persuade the court of the relevance and necessity of such material to the specific factual issues which the court is required to determine. The court should carefully consider the relevance of the evidence to the issues in the case, together with the likely probative value of any such evidence. As part of its analysis and balancing exercise, the court will need to consider all the relevant factors, including any issues as to vulnerability in relation to any of the parties, and the likely impact on any such parties of the admission of such evidence and the manner in which it's used in the proceedings. And secondly, if it's able to do so at a preliminary stage, whether the application or use of such images is motivated in whole or in part by a desire to distress or harm a party. Again, I think that's really interesting. We've also talked, I think, on the podcast before about how litigation can be used as a means by an abuser to prolong abuse of their victim. Uh, and so I think it is very important that she highlights in this guidance that courts should be lied to the possibility that all of this is a tactic to further distress the other party. The circumstances in which a court will permit the inclusion in evidence of sexually explicit or intimate videos or photos of any person are likely to be, in bold, rare. In particular, in circumstances in which that person does not consent to such material being admitted. And where the court is being asked to admit such material, the court should consider whether there may be a range of alternatives to the viewing of such material, for example, but not limited to seeking an admission or partial admission in respect of the alleged conduct, agreed transcripts and or descriptions of any videos, playing only the audio track of videos, using a still image rather than a video or a short excerpt from a longer video, editing images to obscure intimate parts of the body, extracting metadata as to the timing and location of the evidence, focused and specific cross-examination on the issues, consideration of the use of other evidence to prove the particular fact in issue instead. And then further guidance that Mrs. Justice Knowles gives, if the court decides to admit any sexually explicit or intimate images or videos for any purpose, care should be taken to limit the volume of such evidence to that which is necessary to fulfill the purpose for which it is admitted. The court should determine who can view the material that is to be admitted and limit this where necessary, bearing in mind its private character and the humiliation and harm caused to those both depicted and involved in the proceedings. If the evidence is considered relevant, a starting point should be to say that it should incorporate the lowest number of images seen by as few people as necessary and viewed in the least damaging way. It would be helpful to consider how best to ensure that the evidential security of such material can be maintained, for example, by using only password protected files within the hearing itself and outside it, and how the material is deployed within the proceedings. 
And likewise, specific consideration should be given to the protection and safeguards necessary in respect of any video evidence relied upon. So for example, such evidence being made available on a single laptop and brought to court, or the distribution being limited to a core specified legal team on behalf of each party. So an eminently sensible list of guidelines that Mrs. Justice Knowles gives that we desperately needed in private law children proceedings. The rest of the judgment goes on to deal with other case management matters, which I won't go into for the purposes of this episode. So that's that on that. And it's definitely something that we should all be saving into our case law guidance files on our laptop so that we can pick it up because this issue is going to come up over and over again, especially with the increasing use of social media, Snapchat, OnlyFans, whatever it might be. What do you think, Maddie? Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think we've been crying out for this guidance without really knowing that we were for a long time. It's just sort of something that I've always put up with. It's not happened to me on lots of occasions, but it has happened. And I think the more you think about it, the more you do realise that actually what is the forensic purpose of this evidence that people adduce? And often it is used as a means of revenge porn or a means of abuse, particularly in financial proceedings. I've seen it used quite a lot um, to sort of undermine the role of the of the other party in the in the mind of the judge without it being seen as affecting the children as it would in children are proceeding so it's quite an interesting thing and and I yeah I completely agree that I think there needs to be some significant view about how this evidence is adduced and what it is for because I'm struggling to see a way that 38 intimate videos would in any way be more forensically valuable than one depending on what the issue is but of course sometimes that will need to be used and I agree with all the suggestions made that things like descriptions or audio or metadata all that sort of thing very sensible um, and I think avoid the need for parties particularly to be embarrassed especially if they don't consent I mean I can't think of anything much worse than knowing that a court has seen intimate images or videos of you without your consent I mean that is appalling so yeah really helpful and very interesting guidance as ever from Knowles. What are your book podcast talk recommendations for this episode? I have two this week the first is Lady Hale has brought out her book Spider Woman A Life which I have started reading and it's really, really good. I know it's a bit of an obvious choice, but it's it's really good. She talks a lot about the death of her husband. She talks about imposter syndrome. She talks about growing up, going to Cambridge on an exhibition and then being the youngest member of the Law Commission. There's so much interesting stuff in there. And obviously, I mean, she's a fantastically bright, able, competent woman who makes me feel like I've got imposter syndrome. So it's very interesting that she also has those kind of emotions that I know I've spoken to lots of junior members of the bar about. And so I'd really recommend that. And she just writes beautifully and, and has led such a full and interesting life. And of course, has been involved in some really major cases as well. So I'd really recommend that. The uh, The second one that I have is a TED Talk by Lily Singh. I don't know if you know Lily Singh. She used to be a YouTuber. Now she's an actress and kind of makeup artist. She's amazing and I love her. Um, and she has done a TED Talk that is about gender equality. And it's called Seat at the Table Isn't the Solution for Gender Equity. I think it's really interesting. I don't agree with everything she says in it, but I think it's an interesting argument about this idea of there being a seat at the table, which I think we do talk a lot about at the bar and things like accessibility and making room and all of that. And what is wrong with that as an analogy for gender equity, particularly? It's very, very interesting. And I think basically what she says is do away with the table and start again. What does it mean to have a table? That sort of thing. And so for people interested in that sort of thing, I think it is interesting. And anyone who does EDI at their chambers or is involved in management committee, I would recommend it because it's it's very well delivered. But it also looks at some themes about how women in leadership and how women are professional has been sort of moulded to the views of, of traditional masculinity. So it's very interesting and I would recommend it. What have you got? 
So I've been watching bits of the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial in the States and very, very long clips. I mean, it's all been live streamed. So there's tons and tons on YouTube, which you can access for free to see what's been going on in that trial. I'm not going to share my personal thoughts on the case. I just don't know enough. And I'm not falling into that particular social media rabbit hole, which is particularly unpleasant corner of the internet at the moment. But it's really interesting to watch in terms of how things are done differently in another jurisdiction. It's interesting to watch the different styles of cross-examination, what I think works, what I think doesn't work as well, seeing how the judge exercises her case management powers, what the public glare, the effect of the public glare on the way that the proceedings are managed and how people conduct themselves is really interesting, what makes different witnesses effective. It's just interesting to observe as a member of the public, as a lawyer, just to see how things work within the court system. So if you do have a chance, have a look at a couple of interesting clips on YouTube. I found them really quite illuminating. And I always think it's interesting to look at kind of cross-jurisdictional perspectives on things. And I know that there's been some interesting commentary on Twitter about if this had been done here, what would it have looked like? I also wanted to recommend a Panorama documentary that is going to be screened tomorrow, which is the 16th of May. Hopefully this episode will be out by then, but if not, it will definitely be out. And it's a panorama documentary, which is hosted by my colleague at the Transparency Project, Louise Tickle, who we shout out on here constantly. And it's called Protecting Our Children, A Balancing Act. And it explores how social workers impact upon children's lives and their decision-making. She speaks to families who have had um, enormous negative impacts on their lives and on their children as a result of the decisions made by one specific local authority that we've discussed on this podcast before. And I think it'll be really interesting. It'll be a half an hour panorama documentary. Put it on your to listen to list. I'm really excited to hear it as well. Yeah, obviously, I would point out that the Johnny Depp Amaher thing did happen here. They did it in the high court first before they did it in America. So I think it's quite an interesting comparison exercise as well, because I think she won. Yeah, she won her. Well, no. Johnny Depp lost his defamation suit here and the newspaper was successful. So interesting comparisons there. We'll see what happens. But yeah, I agree with you. I'm not sure I want to to go too much more into it than that. It seems like very toxic kind of commentary around that at the moment. But I agree that it's interesting in terms of the actual procedure and, and, and how things go over there. Tweet of the week or tweet of perhaps the last four weeks, because we know we've been a bit slow with this episode. Um, what have you got? Mine is a tweet by Eve Robinson at Eve S. Robinson, who is at your new chambers. And she tweeted at the end of last month, today marks a whole year since I joined 36 Family and what a fab year it has been. But aside from wondering where on earth that time has gone, it's also had me thinking about a question I faced and somewhat dodged for the last 12 months. Why did you move chambers? Moving chambers is very much a hush-hush subject in and of itself. And the process at the bar is like few others when compared to jobs in the outside world. The confidential conversations, midnight flits, and sometimes a lot of judgment from peers for taking that step. There are, of course, the stock phrases to use to answer people who ask, which have come in handy for sure. Fancied a challenge, something new and different, wanted to be in London, but all for me only partially true. So now with my big girl pants on, it's time to answer the question. I moved because in 2019, I was sexually assaulted by a colleague, and despite it all, derisory BSB sanction included, they were allowed to remain as a member of Chambers. I moved as I was fundamentally let down. 
Answering this question honestly is something I've been afraid of. The fear of what people will think, the fear of how it may impact me and my career, and for fear I'm not strong enough to handle it all. But fear and shame in circumstances like these are what result in silence, are what result in people feeling that they are alone and their careers are tainted. Feelings I've known all too well and would never want others to experience. Bottom line, I am no longer afraid, but more importantly, I'm no longer willing to allow for this issue to remain an unspoken one. Things must change, and I would like to do all I can with my experience to make that change happen. I don't really want to comment on it further because I think Eve's words are really powerful and speak for themselves. But Maddie and I have spoken about sexual harassment at the bar in very angry terms previously on this podcast. And I retweeted this and said it shouldn't be brave to tweet this, but it is because at the bar, it is a very, very taboo issue. And a lot of victims of, oh, I don't want to use the word victims, a lot of survivors of sexual harassment and sexual abuse don't speak up because fear they'll, it, it'll be their reputations that are affected, not of the perpetrator. And they'll be seen as the troublemakers and they'll be seen as the ones who are causing a fuss when it was just banter or when it was just, you know, lads being lads or whatever it is. And I think that it is very brave for Eve in those circumstances to speak up and so very necessary. So she, I'm sure she's emboldened lots of others to do the same as well. And I just want to thank her for that tweet and thank her for her openness and to applaud her for doing so much for other people in, in putting that out into the world, because that's going to have real knock-on effects, I think, for people who have been in her situation. Yeah, solidarity with Eve and everyone else who's suffered, both from the act itself and also the way that the profession have responded to it. As, as Malvika said, we've talked about this before and neither of us think that the BSB response to cases like this is, is suitable, acceptable or good enough. And Eve is so strong and brave for doing what she's done and hopefully it will lead to some lasting change. And, I, and we both fully support her in that and anyone else who has been going through what she has been going through. Solidarity with you all. On a slightly lighter note, we are recording this on the 15th of May, which means that the seven day window since pupillage offer day has now closed and everyone has received or not received their pupillage offers or rejections. Uh, my tweet of the week dedication is basically to everyone who has tweeted about it and talked about it and been involved in the process this year. Both huge congratulations to people who have got pupillage. You're all superstars. It's amazing. I honestly don't think I would get pupillage now if I applied. And for those of you who didn't, it wasn't your year onwards and upwards take some time to reflect as we have said multiple times and will continue to say until we're both blue in the face this profession will not define you if you want to do something else that's fine if you find something else that you like better that's fine there is no imperative on you to continue with the process if it's burning you out and take please take the summer and just relax and don't think about pupillage for a bit because the window won't open again for four or five months so give yourself a bit of a break but huge congratulations to everyone who's been offered places Malvika and I've spoken to lots of them individually um, and I won't name them all now but it's amazing to see so many women so many people of color so many people from backgrounds that are underrepresented at the bar it's so great to see really really proud of you all congrats also I think there's been a little bit of unfriendly muttering on social media spheres about people who post about their successes or post about their pupillage offers. I am not in that camp. I know how difficult it is to get pupillage. I know that some people have been applying for years um, and overcome all sorts of personal and professional hurdles to get pupillage. If you want to sing it from the rooftops that you have one, two, three, 15 pupillage offers, do it. And I will like 
all of your tweets and I will be proud of you and I will be celebrating on your behalf as well. So that's my my two cents on that. I think that everyone should be celebrating each other's successes. And although I know that it's difficult for those who haven't got pupillage to read those and we should be mindful of that and sympathetic and empathetic, I also think that there's no reason to dim your light to make others feel better. Absolutely. I concur. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you so much. Apologies again for the slight lateness of this episode and hopefully we will have episode 10 and the end of season two with you very soon. Thanks for listening.